Good day, Brigade. This is Bobby, as always, and today we're going to be discussing some ideas with foreign relations. Mostly the basics of diplomacy and things like that. But first, a fact for you. On this day in 1972, in the Troubles, which... If you don't know what the Troubles is, please, please look that up. Basically, it was a conflict within Ireland between the Irish and the Northern Irish that wasn't quite a war, but close. Like, real close. Basically, it ended with the Good Friday Agreement. That's why everyone wants to keep it intact, because Ireland during the Troubles was one of the most terrifying times and terrifying places you could ever be. Anyways, on to our fact... On this day in 1972, Bloody Friday occurred. What is Bloody Friday? It was a day when provisional IRA soldiers went into Belfast, planted bombs, detonated them, and killed, I believe, nine and injured 130 people. If you want to know how many bombs, 22. In Northern Ireland. Provisional IRA. Yeah, The Troubles is a very, very, very deep, deep story within Irish history, and again, I encourage you should look that up. Anyway, on with the show. So today we're going to be discussing making friends the international way. All good friendships internationally have to start with contact. Naturally, in the modern day and age, contact is not too hard to achieve because, you know, satellites, global positioning, a pretty in-depth understanding about good chunks of the world's surface, can't say all of it, seriously, try mapping out the Amazon sometimes. Sometime. That's ridiculous. Yep. Anyway, contact so far, you know, obvious. Second, usually you want to try to establish some sort of diplomatic relation, and oftentimes this will involve constructing an embassy. Now what does an embassy do? Basically it provides a formal place of ground, ceding a teensy 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 bit of land to that foreign nation in order to build a place where they can basically discuss diplomatic relations quickly, openly, and directly more or less directly with the other nation and that kind of thing. In other words, it's basically a shortcut to not having to go all the way to another country every single time you want something, or want to say something, or even talk. This is kind of like your telegram, or your telegraph service in a way, because basically you go to the embassy. The embassy is the representation of the foreign government within that nation, and they basically represent the, they ought, well, not basically, they totally represent the interests of the people of the foreign nation and in turn usually are largely free to discuss whatever they want in terms of negotiations. There are limits to what they can and can't discuss, what they can and can't do. Usually this is predetermined by the executive or whatever particular branch of the nation's government takes care of that particular thing. Even autocratic dictatorships have have some sort of embassy and diplomats and things like that. So it, it it's one of those things that, as a nation, if you're going to be anything, if you're going to be outside the isolationist idea, 
odds are you're going to have embassies, you're going to have diplomats, because this is just square one. You need embassies to start really doing anything serious with diplomatic relations. So, once you get your embassy built, what do you do now? Well, then you're going to want to start trying to make some deals and start discussing things and all that kind of stuff. I know it's going to sound a lot like we're discussing a strategy game, but in a way that's kind of how diplomacy sort of-ish works. Now, strategy games make it a hell of a lot easier because, you know, you're working with AI, you usually have some sort of predetermined metric in which you can do obvious things to change the favorability or unfavorability of deals and things like that. In real life, this is a lot harder. Like, you have to understand the nation you are discussing things with. You have to understand its peoples, their wants, their needs, their interests, the things they have, their economy, their social function. It's a tough job, and it requires a very in-depth understanding of the people you are going to be an ambassador towards. So, for example, if you're going to be the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom, you're going to want to brush up on British culture, understand a lot of British mannerisms, and really just get to understand the crown, the parliament, the people within it, the needs of their nation, the wants of their nation, the desires, the th everything. Basically, you've got to like, learn everything. You gotta be country stalker. I wish that was an exaggeration, but it really isn't. Diplomacy and espionage are very common in this regard, and that you have to know everything you can, because any little piece can be used as effective diplomatic leverage, so that you in turn can get what you want. Because at the end of the at the end of the day, sorry about that. What it comes down to is you have to concede something. All deals, negotiations, and diplomacy begin with some sort of concession, some sort of compromise. No comp this is why no compromise candidates in politics are one of the worst things you can have, aside from straight-up authoritarians, genocidal maniacs, and fascists. Oh, and Nazis. Screw those guys. Screw Nazis. Anyway, the important things about setting that is basically get so uncomfortably close to the people you want to get to know better that you can almost think like them. When you get these diplomatic deals and all that established, then you can start truly becoming friends in that. It's see, just like in real life and social function between two people, social function between nation states works best when there's history. The more history you have that's positive, the better off you're going to be. The more history that's negative, the worse off you're going to be. Democracies provide a little interesting workaround to this, too, because there can oftentimes be candidates that'll try to go against the status quo of their country, and if they happen to be popular enough with their ideas, it could present an opportunity for former enemies to become friends. This is an interesting scenario in another regard. In fact, you could argue that Trump's policies towards Russia led to the, a brief ish warming of relations between the United States and Russia. Oftentimes Vladimir Putin, interestingly enough, likes to talk to Republican presidents. Many people think that this is because that Republicans are dumb easy to manipulate. That's not true. In fact, you should be very concerned about the Republican Party because they are a lot smarter than you might think. They're not just inbred hicks, they are people. Anyways, but the real reason Putin really likes working with Republican presidents is similar ideals, similar goals for the internal state of their nations. 
See, what you might know is that Putin, before the fall of the Soviet Union, was a part of the KGB. What you might not know is that Putin's political party is a very conservative one, more of a right-wing party overall. In fact, the left-wing opposition is often silenced and taken out, and while there is a Russian Communist Party still, they really, really don't have any power. And for obvious reason. Because they had absolute power, then their economy started faltering this for a variety of reasons, part that a command economy doesn't exactly work super well, and part uh, Ronald Reagan going absolutely crazy with Reaganomics! And just going ape shit on Russia's economy. Seriously, he did. Look it up. And that led to a speedier collapse of the Soviet Union. Interesting side note, though. Nobody expected the collapse of the Soviet Union at the time. Later on, when looking at all the data in history, it's like, oh, this was coming a mile away. But at the time, nobody predicted it. And that's partly because we didn't know our enemies so well that we could basically be that. Going back to diplomacy here, knowing your enemy or knowing your friend is a really valuable thing. Even Sun Tzu acknowledged it. To know yourself and to know your enemy is to win a thousand battles in war. To know only yourself, you may have mixed success. To know neither yourself nor your enemy, you will fa find nothing but failure. Now all that's not Sun Tzu, but it basically drives the point of know thyself, know thy enemy, and know thy friend. Where does this friend come in? Well, your friend can always become your enemy if you're not careful. And this kind of leads us to maintaining diplomatic relations. A big part of diplomatic relations, obviously, is maintaining them. You can't just go, okay, we've got trade deals, so we're friends now. No. Okay, we've got history, so we're friends now. Eh, you're getting there. What you really gotta do is try to maintain diplomatic ties, show that you have the same and similar interests, and show that working together would be more beneficial than not working together. Basically, when it comes to being nation-states, you've got to interact with other nation-states like their people. It's a weird thought, but take the idea of corpus theory, or corpus. Corpus is Latin literally for body. It finds itself in many words, corporatism, corporations, you, you, you get the point. A corpse, <laughs> sorry. But... In itself, corporatism isn't necessarily bad. In fact, in a sociological perspective, it's probably best to see a nation-state as a corporatism, because it's a bunch of people working together as a greater body, especially when it comes to diplomatic relations. This is how nation-states effectively behave as people. They are not in themselves people, but they are bodies of representative interests of people, and thus this representative interest can arguably be their interest and thus there is some entity greater than these people that counts as a body, the nation-state. The corpus idea basically dictates that you have to interact more, like it, more or less like this. Could you act more separately and stuff like that with, like, sovereign citizens? 
Yeah, but you're going to make some mass confusion, screw with some diplomatic relations intensely, and make things much more difficult for everyone. We can cover diplomatic s sovereign citizens too. That's an interesting category, an interesting thought. Ultimately, it's a little bit ludicrous, but we'll get to that in another day. Anyway, the whole idea to maintain diplomatic ties is to do a variety of things. Show that you're interested and that it's better for working together. Now this can come in a variety of ways. You can show on the international stage through the UN that you have similar ideas and goals in mind, which is often the case. You can join an international political organization with your party, which is another very common thing. Fun fact, most national parties actually are connected to a greater international coalition of similar-minded parties. Now using this, if two parties of foreign nations that are in the same international bo governing body of that party's interests happen to get together, then you have a very good potential for a great friendship. But it's not only these things. How do we work a friendship between two nations in which the power is, let's say, asymmetrical? In reality, we're talking superpower versus barely stands on their own feet. What can you do there? Well, oftentimes you won't think that the other nation can really provide much, but there's still what things you can do, and there's still things that would be of strategic interest to help with. As remember, what happens to one in humanity kind of happens to all. Whether we like that fact or not, it is a fact nevertheless. The pandemic clearly proved that. What happens to one kind of happens to all of us as people, and we need to deal with that collectively. But this is why foreign relations are good. And why we go to foreign aid. What is foreign aid, you might ask? Well, it's this thing that a lot of right-wing people get super angry about because it really violates the idea of self-sufficiency and things like that. But foreign aid plays a vital role in diplomatic relations, especially ones that are asymmetrical in nature. Like with the United States and say, Haiti. There's going to be foreign aid given to Haiti because Haiti does not have much to offer. However, being friends with Haiti is valuable to us because it controls our keeps our interests in this Caribbean controlled. Now, there are plenty of other islands we do this with and plenty of other nations, of course, but as long as we're friendly with all the Caribbean, like Teddy Roosevelt thought swinging a big old stick around, then, well, you kind of protect yourself. The idea is that smaller, weaker nations may not necessarily be of, like, economic interest, but they can be of strategic and defensive interest. Especially in the case of, like, say, Turkey. Why is Turkey in NATO? Strategic interest. That's literally the reason. If, if, if there wasn't the strategic interest, I am almost certain Turkey would probably not be a member of NATO. There are a lot of things Turkey does that really piss off a lot of the other members. And quite frankly, Turkey is really pushing their luck with a lot of things. But, you know, you put someone with authoritative mentality in power, they get a little bullheaded, they believe in the hyper-individualist no notion, and will try to move on by themselves. Which is how we get crazy places that nearly collapse. Now, Let's talk about the elephant in the room for a second. In terms of nation-states, 
a lot of people think, oh, well, most nations are pretty connected and all that. But in America, you gotta wonder on one thing, and this is an elephant in the room. What about North Korea? Well, that's an interesting one, actually. The American perception commonly is to believe that North Korea basically has no allies or friends other than China. You know what's interesting about that? That's not right. It's actually kind of the opposite case. In fact, North Korea has diplomatic relations of some degree with most of the world, except for us in South Korea, and I think maybe Japan. So why do we make them try to seem so isolated? It's kind of a propaganda tactic. See, there's a lot of reasons why you might want to make your enemies seem weak and small, especially if you've been in a war you haven't really been paying attention to for a long time. The early propaganda tried to show North Korea as isolated, that they were the odd ones out, that they were the defiance, they were the different, they needed to be stopped because they were the menace that was creating discord within harmony. Maybe not that crazy, but you get the idea. Anyway, North Korea, for quite a while, has actually been building diplomatic relations around the world. In fact, some of their closest allies are within what many would perceive as third world nations. North Korea has a lot of diplomatic ties with many African nations, in part because of a mutual shared commonality of being impoverished, and largely through isolation, war, or colonization. And that leads to an interesting thing, because North Korea you wouldn't, is highly misperceived in the United States. But at the same time, the United States actually has very little information on North Korea, which may be part of the explanation as to why it's so difficult to try to establish any sort of reasonable diplomatic, diplomatic communication with them. We're so vilified to the North Koreans that we are the evil enemy, but at the same time, many of the North Korean citizenry, while they may not necessarily say it, don't exactly perceive Americans that way. We may be fat, lazy, and overindulgent, but are we the evil terror from across the sea? Not really. I mean, it's kind of one of those things where it's like, okay, you say it, but where are they? Where's the beef? You know? So it's kind of interesting how two countries would rather focus so heavily on telling propagandist lies about one another rather than sit down for a moment, actually come to a formal end on a conflict that realistically lasted three years, historically is technically about 60 some odd years old. Yeah, North, the Korean War technically ended-ish in a ceasefire, however, ceasefire is not treaty and thus war is still true. Ceasefire is, we aren't going to be fighting right now, but that doesn't mean we aren't fighting in the future. So, for those of you worried about a second Korean War, don't be. There has to be a first Korean War to finish. And honestly, this is kind of where we get to the opposite end of diplomatic relations, which is, you know, diplomatic anonymity. You want friends? And about the only diplomatic connection you have with one another is, I hate you. I want to talk to you about making you less hateful, hateworthy. 
but I hate you. And this is one of the worst states nations can be in, other than nations simply not talking to each other. And honestly, it's one of those things that just needs to be stopped in modern global diplomacy. We need to start sitting down and negotiating with everyone on the planet and start really talking with other nations on nation states and countries and see what we can do to improve. Personally, it's this it's my view that as the United States, we shouldn't necessarily be playing an interventionist role or anything like that, but rather we should be playing a responsible global custodian role. Why do I why do I say this? And what do I mean by custodian? What I mean is, we gotta play the role of taking care of other nation-states and helping them get to a level that's better. Why? Because it will improve our condition as well. It's not enough to simply just say, okay, we're going to be doing this, and you're going to be following along. It doesn't work that way. We can't push the way forever. In fact, many nations and countries and kingdoms and empires have tried, and every single one of them, historically, has failed. This is what leads, this is one of the many things that leads to the collapse of great nations, is the inability to work and cooperate with the world around them. Part of what led the Roman Empire to last so as long as did, so long as it did, sorry about that, I am really messing my words up today, but part of the reason the Roman Empire was able to last for thousand years, a thousand years, in some incarnation, was because it maintained and understood the relations and diplomatic nature of the nation and states and kingdoms and empires around it. Now I keep saying nation state, but in ancient era that wasn't really a thing. Just keep that in mind. The idea of the nation state didn't come about until much later with the idea of sovereignty. Which is another topic for another day. In fact, we're going to cover that next week. What sovereignty, what is it, and why is it a thing? Who are, who are sovereign citizens, and why is sovereign citizenry insane? That's going to be next week. But sovereignty is really important because it leads to recognition. If you are sovereign, recognized as a nation state, you can go and be a part of diplomatic relations. This is what we've got to encourage as the great power of the world. We can't be putting America first. It won't work that way. It will only lead to our collapse. We got to bring everyone along with us. We can't leave people behind and we have the power to bring them up. Am I saying we should be intervening and determining and making peace treaties for other peoples and things like that? Hell no. What I'm saying is, with the power we have, we should be supporting people where we can, finding solutions to the problems that arise, and realizing that if we don't help others, we're only going to destroy ourselves. Why is that? Because our nation is very interconnected with the rest of the world. Why? Because back, 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 way back to the founding of this nation, the Founding Fathers were aware of one very serious thing. If we don't have strong allies, the British are going to come back and whoop our asses. 
And this isn't too hard to believe. In fact, when we did have allies, they still came back. <laughs> Why? Because they didn't want to recognize us. They didn't want to recognize and acknowledge our sovereignty. How did we get that recognition and acknowledgement? Well, we faced the rest of the world, asked them for support, got their support, and got their recognition. Diplomatic relations are essential. We can't just simply go around and say, hey, this is what we're going to call it. Hey, this is what it's going to be. Hey, we're dictating everything. The interventionist role doesn't work. And with the way our diplomatic relations are so intertwined with our trade agreements, our negotiations of international bodies and pacts, our role in standing at the top and pinnacle of most of these, we can't back away from the world either. There's only one way to go for the United States, and that's outward. Not in an expansionist way, in a diplomatic way. We have to keep talking with other peoples in other places. We have to discuss what's going to be best for them. We can't be forcing the American ideal on other peoples. We gotta find out what the Chinese ideal is. We gotta figure out what the British ideal is. We gotta figure out what the Senegali ideal is. We got you in there, Africa, don't worry. We'll get you in there anymore. What is the Mozambique idea? What is the Madagascan idea? What are their dreams? What are their aspirations? The American dream and the American ideal is not for everyone. Not everyone wants it, and in the, world's, in the way the world is designed, it doesn't work everywhere. It works for us because we have the expansion, the room, the space, the development, and the growth. We have the factors that allow for what we call the American ideal. Though honestly, we gotta argue for what the American ideal is nowadays. Honestly. Want to know my vision of the American ideal? It's a nation that is responsible for its takes responsibility for its actions, helps out its friends and allies, and tries to understand its enemies better, so that they may one day become friends too. We're gonna call it right here because I feel like if we go on any further, we're gonna get rambling, and I think you get the idea. To sum up, basically, foreign relations are essential. Without foreign relations, you're kind of going it alone, and if you go it alone, you're not going to last super long. Isolationism fundamentally doesn't work for the United States anymore because we're too interconnected. We can't be too interventionist either, though, because the nature of our connections is one that, without them being independent and sovereign themselves, would merely be consumption and expansion and not exactly help anything. And, well... To make friends on the international stage, you gotta treat nation states and their people like people, as your equal. There's no other way it works. Anyways, that's our show. Thank you for tuning in. If you wanna donate, you can always go to anchor.fm backslash Bobby, B A H B I, dash Barnett, B A R N E T T. If you don't, that's perfectly fine. We're a passion project anyways. We're going to be doing this whether we get paid for it or not. And we hope that you enjoyed. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll be back on Friday with the Friday Proposal. Have a wonderful evening. <laughs>